Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. I love January. Um, I think January is just such a fun time of the year. Look, I, I have holidays at this time of the year and I know that may not be the experience of everyone here, but I just love January. And, and particularly in church at the moment, we've been looking through the Psalms and I just love being able to revisit the Psalms. Does anyone else just love reading the Psalms? They're so good. There is so much in the Psalms that uh, we could actually preach through them for the whole entire year and not even get to the end. Like there is just so much in there. There are so many Psalms. And uh you know, if you were here last week, you would have heard an amazing message from Pastor Ben, and, and he shared from a, a psalm of lament. Now, we know the psalms, some of them are a little bit more uplifting and encouraging than others. And I'm actually going to share from a, a, a lamenting psalm myself today. And uh, as I was thinking about it, I was kind of like, what did these guys do when they were writing these psalms? You know, like, were they writing in their personal journals and then somehow, like, we've fallen upon them and then they've been added to the scripture here? Like, is that kind of what happened? I would think, you know, like, gosh, I hope no one finds my journal with all the things that I've been writing about, you know, like. But the thing that I realise as I read through the psalms is that it gives us so much insight into the writers of the psalms, so much insight into what they're going through. And um, we see that, the Psalms are written by people that are expressing their, their emotions, their feelings, um, and they're not holding back. And I love that. I love that um, you know, they feel that they can do that. But more than that, I love that they do it with God. Because when we do that with God, we, uh, we are saying to him, you know, like, oh, look, maybe I don't know where you are right now, but I, I trust that you are here. And the thing that I realized as I read through the Psalms is a few things. You know, human emotions haven't changed in thousands of years. You know, the things that the psalmists go through, look, I might not be facing the exact same things as them, but I can have the same emotions as they have. And as they are raw in their emotions with God, I realise that God's not scared of our emotions. He's not scared of the things that we're going through. He's not scared of us telling him about how we feel. In fact, the opposite. He actually listens and responds to the psalmist's prayers. And I believe he responds and listens to ours as well. And another thing I see is that, you know, we're able to trust and fully have faith in who God is and what he can do. And I just love this about the Psalms. You know, they've got raw emotion in them and it means that we can just be real with God too. You know, they were real with God, we can be real with God. And so today we're going to look at one of those Psalms, a Psalm that is full of emotion. And the Psalm we're looking at today is Psalm 42. Now, the interesting thing about Psalm 42 is that it finds itself in the start of the second book in the Psalms. So you may not realise the Psalms are broken into five different books and this is at the start of the second one. And it's an interesting Psalm. It follows a very uh, familiar pattern. So this pattern of verses and then choruses. So we're very used to this in our songs now. And so I can see how this could be a song, although I am not going to sing it. Um, and the other thing is, is that a lot of people believe that Psalm 42 should actually be read alongside Psalm 43. And that is because it follows the same pattern of you know, verse and chorus, but the chorus in Psalm 43, or reprise, is identical to the one that we find in Psalm 42. And so it's kind of interesting that we see this as we read along. Psalm 43 has no title, it has no direction, like um, we don't know who wrote it, but because of its structure, we believe that is the extension of Psalm 42. But today we're literally just going to look at Psalm 42. So you can go home and you can read Psalm 43 in your own time. Um, but Psalm 42 starts with to the choir master. And so, like I said, this familiar structure, 
really does lend itself to a song and apparently they thought so too. And it's also called a mascal. Now, I don't know if any of you know what a mascal is. I didn't. So I looked it up and it means to have insight or to be skillful. Um, and it's written by the sons of Korah. The heading in my Bible for this psalm says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And so that might give you a bit of an indication perhaps about the, the content within this psalm. And it starts in verse 1 saying, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Or some manuscripts say, when shall I come and see the face of God? My tears have become my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So here is remembering a time past where you know, he was in his community and they were going into the, to the house of God. And then we come to verse 5. So this is the first of those reprises or choruses and it says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It goes on to say, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. So this tells us that he's actually in a far-off place. So he's not at home. He is actually a really, really long way away from his holy land. Verse 7 says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And the enemy here is just a personal enemy. It says, and with a deadly wound. And that word wound there means shattering. I think it just creates such imagery, you know. With a deadly shattering in my bones, my adversaries, so my personal enemies taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And then it ends with, why are you cast down all my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, I don't know if there's anyone in here that just everywhere they go, they carry a bottle of water. Is there anyone like that in this room today? Yeah, there's a few of you. I see a few hands, a few of the guys at the back. Look, you guys are my people. I am 100% just like you. Everywhere I go, I like to take a bottle of water with me. Now, the thing is about taking a bottle of water, and I've had many people ask me this question, like, why are you doing it? Like, I'm not necessarily thirsty at that point. It might not even be a hot day. Uh, I may even be going somewhere that has water, but yet I still feel the need to carry my bottle of water with me. And it's kind of funny, you know, like, Ben and I will be going places sometimes and I'll be trying to fit my water bowl into my bag and he's like, what are you even bringing that for? Like, why do you need it? I don't always have the answer, but I can tell you sometimes we go places and he needs a drink and I have my bottle and he doesn't have his. So I think in the grand scheme of things, you know, I am the winner here. I'm the one that's prepared. I'm the one that has my water and I know that I'm going to be okay. And I think, you know, for me at that time, you know, thirst is just one less thing I have to worry about. You know, like we're trying to carry lots of different things and do lots with our day and I don't have to worry about being thirsty if I've got my water with me. You know, this psalm, it begins with a powerful image of a deer aching with thirst you know it says as a deer pants for flowing streams 
You know, that word pants in the Hebrew is arug. I can't say it properly because I can't roll my R's. Um, but it means to strongly desire, long for or crave. So this deer here is strongly desiring, longing for and craving flowing streams. And um, I think it's kind of interesting. I don't know how much you know about deer. I don't really know very much about deer. I don't have very much experience with deer. I have had one encounter with a deer and it was terrifying. Ben and I were driving up to Mount Donabuang one night. Um, don't ask me why we were there at night time. I think we were just going up there to look at the view and see all the city lights. It's beautiful. Anyway, part way up the mountain, we come around a bend and there is a massive stag standing there right in the middle of the road and it is looking directly at us. And I am kind of like the deer. Like I am like literally like a deer in headlights. And Ben's like, what's wrong with you? Like, are you okay? I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like it's looking at me. You know, like it looked like it was like staring right at me and I was like oh my gosh and here I am thinking like I was so concerned about this deer because they can do a lot of damage to your car you know and I'm like I don't know what it's going to do um, but the one thing that that deer wasn't doing is it wasn't panting at the time when I saw it it was literally just standing there staring at me and so I got me thinking I'm like well what would actually make a deer pant I'm so glad that you asked um, a deer pants because they're very much like dogs so they don't have sweat glands like we do where we can you know sweat and you know cool off um, so a deer will pant when it gets hot. But there is another time that a deer will pant. And the other time a deer will pant is when it's thirsty. And so a thirsty deer is generally thirsty for one of two reasons. Uh, one is because it can't find any water. <laughs> I bet you could all have thought of that one yourself. It just can't find any water. Um, maybe that's in a you know in a drought, and so that it's really concerned. Okay, can't get any water, um, or it's been pursued by a predator. And so you can imagine, you know, this deer has been running away from a predator and it needs to find water. Like it is panting, it is thirsting for water. And I think, what a dangerous place for that deer to be in. So I'm thinking, like, where could they find water? They're either going to find it, in my opinion, I don't know, at the bottom of a, a valley, you know, kind of where a stream might be located. And I think, oh, geez, you know, if it finds itself there, then it could easily get picked off, I guess, because there's not really anywhere to go. Or it might go out to like a really wide open space, like a savannah where there might be a pool of water there. And I think, oh, like that's probably not great either because pretty easy pickings in the middle of nowhere, like where there's, you know, grand open space. Um, and so I think for a deer that is looking for water, it is desperate. Like it is more than thirsty, like it is really desperate if it's in that place where it's panting and needing water. And the thing about thirst is that it's insatiable. Like if you've ever been thirsty, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, and gone long enough, it, it is actually deadly if you don't have a drink of water. And so, you know, like thirst, you could say, almost pursues us like a predator would pursue a deer. You know, it's been hot recently. I know we've had a lot of rain, but we've also had a bit of heat. And on one of those hot days, we decided as a family to go down to the beach. Now, look, I don't particularly love the beach. And I know there are other people in here that are like me because there was a Facebook post this week asking that very question, pool, beach. I found myself in a real conundrum because I don't really like pools either. But I think, I think the thing is I actually prefer beaches because it at least looks beautiful. You know, you're at the beach and there's something about the sound of the ocean that's nice, but I hate the sand. And I just, you know, I've had to learn to get over it because the kids love going to the beach. And I'm like, fine. I guess we'll go to the beach, let's all go. But look, when we were there, it was so hot. I was like, you know what, I'm getting in that water, which I wouldn't always do. I quite like sitting on the beach and looking at it. And the thing is, even though I was in the water and I was cool, I still got thirsty. I don't know if that's been your experience. I was in the, I was in the water at the beach. And the thing about salt water is 
you can't really drink it. Like it's not going to quench your thirst. In fact, if you drink the salt water, you're going to get more thirsty. And the funny thing about beach water is that when you're in it, like you kind of get thirsty anyway, like no matter what the conditions are, you know, being in that salt water makes you thirsty. And so, you know, like I always do, I had packed a drink bottle, so lucky me. <laughs> My drink bottle was in the esky, so I was fine when it came to water. But if I hadn't had access to water, you can think about how dangerous that would have been. You know, people living in the times of the writing of this psalm, they didn't have access to water like we do. Like they didn't have, you know, modern taps where we can just go and turn it on and the water comes out. You know, they knew the dangers of being without water. They knew what it meant to get water. And so if you were out water and you were thirsty, then this was actually, you know, quite life-threatening or like you were really, you know, potentially scared in this moment because you knew you had to find some water. You know, for us, it's just more of a, a temporary discomfort. You know, a bit like hunger for us, I guess. You know, it's kind of annoying if you're hungry, but you know you're going to be fine. You could go days, maybe even weeks without getting something to eat. And, you know, while you, your body may not be faring okay, like, you know you're actually going to be okay in the end. You know, if you get something to eat, you'll be okay. Um, but when you're thirsty, it's very different. Um, it doesn't work the same way. You have to fulfil that need. It's relentless. And thirst for water has been a topic of many, many stories passed down in Israelite history. It might seem a bit weird, you know, um, the topic of water, but if we look at the Exodus story and we've got the Israelites that were, you know, held as slaves in Egypt and then God performs many miracles there and then he finally takes them out on dry ground through the Red Sea and then they find themselves in the wilderness and they're there and they're wandering around and they're like, oh gosh, they start moaning like Moses, like what have you done, why are we here? And we read in Exodus 17.3, they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? So not hunger, but thirst. And I think that this is kind of a fair question. Like if that was me, and you know, like I feel like these rides get a bit of a bad rap. Like if that was me, I'd be, like, I'd be thinking the same thing. I'd be like, oh my gosh, like where are we going to find water? We're wandering around in the wilderness. There is nothing here. Like what are we doing? It would be better for us to have stayed in Egypt. At least in Egypt, we had food, we had stuff to drink but you know we were slaves but that's better than this like what what are we doing out here in the wilderness and the interesting thing is is that despite their grumbling god still supplied all of their needs you know deuteronomy 8 15 tells us of this provision it says who that being god who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water who bought you water out of the flinty rock. The thing that's really interesting about this particular account where Moses gets water from the rock is that it's actually recorded 23 times in the Old Testament. And I was like, that, that is a lot to tell the same story, right? Like, it's kind of annoying if you've already heard someone tell a story before, but then if you hear them tell it 23 times, you're like, oh my gosh, like I have heard this so many times. You're like, why is it written so many times? Why do they keep talking about it? And, you know, it's... it's <laughs> It's got to be more than just the provision of water. <laughs> I mean, obviously we know that was important, but it's got to be more than that. And I think the reason why they share it so much is because it showed God's faithfulness to his people even when they were not faithful to him. Even when they were grumbling against him, he was still faithful to them. And, you know, this reminds me of the gospel message. 
you know, like Jesus died for us in our place while we were not faithful to him, while we didn't know who he was. Like for us personally, I mean, that was thousands of years ago. Like there is no way that we could have known him. But yet he was faithful to why he came to earth in the first place. And he, he died that death in our place so that we could have a relationship with him, so that we wouldn't have to pay that sacrifice. And I just love this picture, you know, if Jesus is faithful even when we're not. And God was faithful all the way back then with the Israelites, even when they were not faithful to him. You know, I think that the, like the gospel, the water out of the rock shows that God's provision in the natural can be a picture of God's provision in the spiritual as well. You know, I don't know how you've envisioned this event. So Moses is at the rock, he hits it and water comes out. Now, I don't know if I saw this in a picture Bible at some point, but I've always kind of imagined it's like you've got Moses and Aaron and a, a few others gathered around, like 12 or 20 people. They hit the rock, water comes out, hallelujah, like we have water. But the reality is, is that there were a lot more people there than what I have imagined. And maybe I'm alone in this. But I was like, interested. So I thought, oh, how many people were there actually there? So I did a bit of research. Exodus 12 tells us that out of Egypt came 600,000 men, besides women and children. A mixed multitude was also with them, as well as their livestock. So if we think about how many people that must have been, so there was only 600,000 men. You know, I did a, you know, looked at a lot of different commentaries, read a lot of different things about this. Most people say there are about two and a half million people in total. And I was thinking, I'm like, wow, that's a lot of people. And that's a lot of water. Like, I've just imagined, you know, maybe like a bit of a gush coming out of this rock. But actually, there was a lot of water. And I start to think, you know, okay, mathematically, if every person had two cups of water, which isn't a lot, but maybe it was enough to quench their thirst at that moment. Um, if we only gave water to the men, that's 300,000 litres. And I was like, mm, that's a lot of water. But if they had closer to the 2.5 million, and then remember they had to water their livestock... That's two and a half million people, which would require 1.25 million litres of water. Now, I don't know if you've got a frame of reference for how much water that is, <laughs> but an Olympic-sized swimming pool contains two and a half million litres of water. So we're looking at minimum half of that swimming pool. Now, I know some of you may not have seen one of those pools in real life. That's okay. I'm sure you've all seen one on TV and get an idea of the magnitude of the amount of water that actually came from this rock. And the thing is, it wasn't just any rock. It was a flint rock. Now, flint, I don't know if you know anything about flint, but you can take that camping with you and you can use it to spark and start fires. And I was like, so they got water out of a rock that could be used to create fires. The other thing is, is that that rock is also very, very hard. Now, what that meant for them is that they would actually use flint rock to create different tools. And I thought, gosh, like... How hard would he have had to hit it in the natural with a stick to get that thing to even break open for a starters? And yet he struck that rock, the rock that was designed to create sparks and create fire, a rock that was so hard that they would use it for all of their tools, and yet it broke open and water came out. You know, just like water flowed from that rock, the psalmist tells us that the deer pants for flowing water, for flowing streams. And you know, throughout scripture, God is referred to as the living water. And more than that, when we read about Jesus, he says that I am the living water and that he can give us the living water too. And so we read in John 4, 
um, about this Samaritan woman who finds herself at a well and, and Jesus comes along and he's, he says to her, you know, give, give me a drink. Can I have a drink? And this is the conversation that flows. So we're going to pick it up from verse 9. It says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you, sorry, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or come here to draw water. You know, like springs of fresh water satisfy our physical thirst, Jesus declares that through him our soul's thirst can be quenched as well. You know, he's saying that if we come to him, we don't need to thirst again. And we know that he's not talking about physical thirst. He's talking about the thirst of our soul, having a relationship with him that will be satisfied not only here on earth, but in our eternal life as well, that he's able to satisfy that desire too. You know, the Samaritan woman was just like the deer in verse 1, longing for and needing water. And in verse 2, we read, My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. You know, that word soul there is the Hebrew word nefesh. And nefesh means specifically the living being, so our inner self. So we're talking about our mind, our will, our emotions, our thoughts. You know, we're not talking about the immortal soul that's going to live on. We're talking about the here and now. And when we're talking about that, the psalmist is giving us this picture that demonstrates how much our soul is craving him, just like that deer who is craving for water. Did you know that health professionals say that by the time you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated? And the key to staying hydrated is to continually drink water, right? So if you keep drinking water, then you don't feel thirsty and then you're hydrated, like you're fine. Um, But when you thirst for God, you recognise that you have this deep need to have him. You have this deep need for him and his presence. And if you meet with him regularly, you may not realise how thirsty your soul actually is because you're actually, you know, filling that up a bit. But the reality is our soul is always thirsty for the presence of God. And just like we can't live without water, we can't live without his presence. You know, Psalm 63.1 says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. And the reason for his seeking is that his soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You know, we need to be a people who earnestly seek God, who, who when we seek him, we know that we're going to find him as the scripture tells us. And, you know, maybe for you, you don't have a relationship with God at the moment. Um, I know for me, before I came to have a relationship with God, it was almost like I had this void inside me, this, this emptiness. And it kind of didn't really matter what I did. It didn't matter how much I strived and, and what kind of you know, accolades I got in terms of school or uni, whatever it was. It didn't really matter what I achieved. That void, that emptiness was still there. 
And, you know, when we're talking here about, about thirst and when we're talking about our desire to need God, he's the only one that can fill that void. So I found when I came to find Jesus and have a relationship with him, that, that void, that emptiness actually disappeared. I stopped having to strive. I stopped having to try and prove things to other people or, or whatever it is. You know, you may have your own story. But as I began to grow my relationship with God, I realized that I needed to trust him with everything. Yeah. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I don't know what it is about me, but I always seem to find myself in these situations, school, uni, workplaces, where they go, you know what we're going to do today? We're going to do some trust exercises. And I'm like, no, why? Like, please, no. Like, I understand the premise of, you know, working together with team, but why? And I think, you know, oh gosh, hopefully they'll just do the one where you're blindfolded. You know, like they blindfold you, then your partner leads you around and you can't see where you're going. But I'm like, well, what's the worst that can happen? Like, I might bump into something and it might hurt, but I'll be fine. The one that really gets me terrified, and that's not an overstatement, is when they go, what we're going to do is in partners, one of you is going to stand facing this way, the other one's going to be behind you and you are going to fall backwards and they are going to cut you. And I go, uh, are they? <laughs> like, I don't know. I Like, you've really got to trust that person who's going to catch you, don't you? And I just think, you know, I am so sorry if you're one of those people that have done that before and instead of your partner catching you, you hit the ground. I just think, how could you ever trust anyone ever again if that has been your experience? The only thing that would make me feel okay in that situation is if I knew the person really well and I could trust them. You know, the closer that you are to someone, the more you know if you can trust them. And in order to get close to someone, well, you've got to be close to them. So proximity matters. And the same is with us and God. You know, in order to know if we can trust him, we need to have a close relationship with him. He's not interested in this long distance relationship where we might connect every now and then, or, you know, we might drop in and see each other from time to time, or we might talk on the phone once a year or whatever it is. He's interested in the day in, day out relationship, the type of relationship you would have with your closest friend, the closest person to you, an intimate relationship, the type where they, they know you inside and out. That is the type that God is wanting with us. And this is the desire that we would have in our life to have his presence if that is the relationship that we're going off after with God. You know, I think it's one thing to carry a bottle of water, um, but if we never drink from it, we're going to die. Like we will get dehydrated and we will die of thirst if we never actually take a drink of that water. And I think, you know, the way that we quench the thirst of the soul is to take up the offer to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, you know, even though we want to be righteous, do you know that we can't establish that through our behaviour? We can't establish that through our works. There's nothing really that we can do. But now we have a bit of attention because what we find is we have this innate desire in us to be able to do that, but it's something that we can't create ourselves and we can't control. And have you ever noticed that the, the harder you work, the more thirsty you actually become, the more dehydrated you are? Now, I want you just to imagine yourself for a moment. You're sitting at home on the couch watching your favourite sport. Now, I know for some of you are going, yeah, Sarah, but I don't like sport. I don't sit and watch sport. Just imagine it for a little while, okay? So maybe it's tennis, okay? So we had, a, you know, tennis last night. May, maybe it's footy for you, basketball, um, you know, whatever it is, soccer. And you're sitting there and you're watching these players play their game. And you think, hang on a second. They're getting a lot more sweaty than I am sitting here watching them. Like, why aren't I as sweaty as they are? 
You know, not to mention the fact that they are way more thirsty than me. In fact, I could potentially sit and watch a whole game and not even get thirsty. But I can guarantee you that those players, they, they have been thirsty while they've been playing. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if there was a way that, um, you know, we could drink and we would never get thirsty again? Wouldn't that be amazing? Like the one-time drink that you would have and it would quench your thirst forever, not just in sport but in life. And that's something to fix our dehydration of our soul forever. And do you know what that is? Jesus. He offered that for us, that when we take a drink from him, we don't have to um, thirst in life in the same way. You know, we need to stop working so hard to quench our own thirst and instead go to the one who can. You know, what do you do when things are tough, when things are hard? Um, What do you do when you're struggling to find where God is in your circumstances? Do you ever ask questions like, God, where are you? You know, the psalmist did. In verse 2 to 3, it tells us, it says, when shall I see the face of God? That's like, where are you? When When will I see you? My tears have been my food day and night. You know, that tells me that he is not in a great place, the writer of this psalm. You know, emotionally he's not in a good place, um, mentally he's not in a good place, and it appears like he's not sleeping or eating because he says his tears have been his food day and night. And then it says, while they say to me, so these unbelievers we read about, you know, in a few verses later, these unbelievers are taunting him and they say all the day long, they say, where is your God? And I think maybe that was his own question too. You know, sometimes you hear it enough and then you go, yeah, you're right. Like, God, where, where are you? Where are you, God? The funny thing is, is that at the same time, he would already know the answer because we know um, that God is there with him because he's praying with him, right? So he's praying to God. So we know that he knows God is there, but it's easy to feel like God isn't listening when your prayers aren't being answered. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to feel like... You don't have all the answers to everything. You're like, oh gosh, like, God, when, when are you going to come through? When are you going to answer my prayers? Like, where are you? What are you doing? Um, the, the thing we need to be careful of is that when we find ourselves in these times where we're asking these questions, that we don't allow our circumstances to shape how we view God, how we believe in his ability to actually be able to come through and answer those prayers. Just because we haven't seen him move yet doesn't mean that he's not moving. It doesn't mean that he's not doing things in the background. It doesn't mean that your breakthrough isn't about to happen. You know, there are times when everything in life can feel overwhelming. Like, let's face it, like, things can feel overwhelming sometimes. And the psalmist knew this. You know, he's saying, you know, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. You know, he's talking about this relentlessness of water that is flooding over him. You know, I talked about the beach earlier and I'm sure you've all been to a beach or at least seen one at some point and particularly at a surf beach, like those waves, they just keep coming wave after wave after wave and life can feel like that sometimes too. You go to a waterfall, it's just this big body of water that's just flowing over the edge and it's crashing down, you know. There is nothing that you could put in the way of that waterfall that's going to stop that from coming. And life can feel like that sometimes and the, the psalmist is writing about this. And he's asking the question, you know, why have you forgotten me? You know, in those moments where he's feeling overwhelmed, he's actually feeling really alone. Like, God, where are you? Why have you forgotten me? Why are you not coming through? Why are you not answering my prayers? And maybe you have felt like this too. Maybe you feel like it right now. While your circumstances aren't changing, 
and you ask God, you know, why, why have you forgotten me? Where are you? Where is my breakthrough? We see that the psalmist, his response is to say to God, he says, God, my rock. You know, not only is he maybe referring to the scripture that we are talking about earlier, but he's talking about something that is firm, something that is steady, something that is reliable, something that you can depend upon. And he's saying, you know what, like I can see that maybe things aren't going the way that I want right now. I'm feeling completely overwhelmed with everything that's happening. But God, you are my rock and I'm going to trust in you. You know, despite the state of mind that he was in, despite the, the memories that he's talking about and when he was in communion with other people, he's saying, you know what? I believe and I trust in your steadfastness. And when he finds himself in this situation, and, and maybe some of us need to do that too, he starts to look inward and he's like, okay, well, what's actually going on? You know, God, I believe you are who you say you are, but why do I still feel like this? What's actually going on? And in verse 5 and 11, we get an insight into what the psalmist is, is feeling. And he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? That word cast there means to be bent low, to be depressed or in despair. So he's saying, you know, why, why are you depressed? Why are you in despair on oh my soul? And he goes on to say, why are you in turmoil within me? That word turmoil there means anxious. Like, why are you anxious within me? His soul is not well. He is struggling. He's finding that he doesn't have peace, perhaps. And he maybe he's struggling because he's not seeing God move the way that he wants to see God move. He doesn't have the joy and the rest that he's been wanting. We know that he's awake day and night, you know, feeding on his tears. Like, that's a horrible image, guys. Um, and so why is his soul not well? Because I think if we can understand maybe why the psalmist's soul wasn't well and how he can still have this perspective, then maybe we can too. And so there's actually four things, four, <laughs> four things that made his soul unwell. The first one was spiritual dryness and isolation. So we read at the start that he had this deep desire for God and his presence. He was crying out of this longing of his soul. You know, he was feeling spiritually dry and maybe a bit isolated. The second one was seasons of spiritual isolation. So we read in verse 4 that he's, he's reminding himself and even reminding God of the times where he felt like he was part of community, maybe a community here like ours. Um, and he was remembering that and he was longing for the, the worship, the corporate worship that they would have together with their God. Number three is physical struggles. I mean, I've mentioned it before, you know, he's not sleeping, he's not eating, like his physical body is not doing well and that can affect our soul as well. And the last one, the fourth one, was relational pressure. So we read of those who are, who are speaking out against him, who are opposing him, his adversaries, so his personal enemies that are making things really difficult for him and asking all those questions that maybe he doesn't actually want to ask, like, where is your God? Like, where, where is God? You know, life has its hard seasons. And things sometimes can feel like they're snowballing on us. But this psalm reminds us that we're not alone in those seasons where we're feeling this emotional turmoil. And we need to have the desire to have a satisfied soul and go to the one that can give that to us. And so I want to give some of us a, an opportunity to respond this morning. So can, I'm going to ask all of you to bow your head and close your eyes. Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.